Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl, and it is a damn pleasure to join you today. I have a newsletter that I release every week. If you do not have it in your inbox yet, every Wednesday morning, you need to go and subscribe. All you do is go to chrisrawl.com. All you do is click on the subscribe button, put your email in. Bam, voila, every Wednesday morning, you're good to go. All right, we are going on to today's show because I have a lot to talk about. I'm talking about the U.S. Open talking about golf as a sport, talking about the Stanley Cup Finals, talking about hockey as a sport, and I'm talking about the NBA Finals and basketball as a sport and all of those tying into one simple word that I've talked about before and we'll talk about again, culture. How do you create a vision for something, anything, that will make people care? How do you get people to care? Great question in life as we try to wind our way through this very hard thing that poses a lot of challenges every minute of every day for all of existence. It's something worth mulling over. On an individual level, I've done that many times in this podcast. I do it literally every day in my own life. What do I care about? Why do I care about it? What do I want to care about? All of those things just constantly bouncing around in my school and the pursuit of each one of those things. Now, on an individual level, I'm fascinated by it. I love it for myself. I talk about it on this show. Maybe it's applicable sometimes, maybe it's not. That's kind of a personal journey that everybody has to find in their own way. Sometimes there's crossover and sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's a very lonely road to find something that you yourself cares about that makes you feel. Now that ties a lot into last Friday's show. And I'm probably gonna be talking about that again in the near future as I talk about this emotional component of sports, something that makes me feel deeply and that it's worthy of pursuit. You know, If you feel something like that, you gotta go after it. That's my own personal belief. And again, you don't have to agree with that or apply it to your own life because we're all different people. What works for you might be the opposite for me. Really cool aspect of life. Again, this this hard thing that we go through. Now, what's really hard to identify and understand is we all know what makes each individual person tick. You know what makes you tick. I know what makes me tick. I know what I want to pursue. You know what you want to pursue. Where it gets a lot murkier and harder to predict and understand is when you try to apply How do I make other people care about this thing? How do I make people buy into what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, this vision that I have for myself or my business or my team or any of these things? So that's the place we're going to start in today because I think about that a lot in general. Again, applicable on a life level, applicable on a sports level. And I've been thinking about that as the sport of golf itself has kind of started to fracture into different components. You know, the story within the sport right now is the PGA Tour versus Liv. Liv, it's the Saudi golf thing that's going on. Uh, Just exorbitant amounts of money by the Saudi public fund that, hey, we want to bring entities here that kind of normalize what we're doing on a, a governmental level. And so one of those areas that they honed in on was, let's get professional golfers to come over here, throw a bunch of money at them. We can create something called the Liv Tour that are, you know, essentially exhibition matches. That's what Jay Monahan said, the PGA Tour commissioner, when he was way mad about it. But that's what they amount to. They're just exhibition matches that um, professional golfers get paid a bunch of money to go and play in these eight random sites, I think. And there you go. A lot of money, right? And PGA Tour is pushing back because they know this is very bad for us, even though they've sat on their hands for a long time and not made improvements to their sport that have allowed this moment in time to be possible. Now, this current war between these two factions, PGA Tour and Liv, It already is, and it seems destined to fracture this sport into many different directions. Probably none of them being good, in my opinion. You know, 
because I look at it and I go, well, what do fans want? What do I want? I'm a fan. And I think I speak for probably all of you as fans when I say, well, we want, we want tournaments that feature the best players in the world and we want them playing for stakes that matter. You know, you get that combination. You get highly competitive people into a field and whatever they're playing for, they care about. At that point, you're going to see players care. And if players care, then that makes me a fan want to care. That invests me emotionally in something. So now I have gambling. That's the cold, hard, calculated thing that I can always use to attract me to whatever event it is. But I want to tack on the emotional aspect of it, which golf at its best is exactly what I just described. It's a great course. It's the best players in the world. And it's playing for stakes that they care about, that I care about, that kind of stuff. Now, that's where the money and what the PGA Tour is always trumping for itself, this combination of money and supposed prestige, that's where this gets a little murky. And that's where both of these entities, the PGA Tour and Live, they both kind of lose me because they're each trumping those things. The PGA Tour says, well, we have a long track record of these prestigious events. And, you know, we got purses and there's more than enough money to go around. And Liv is just going, it's all money all the time. You know, you'll never think about money again ever in your life. If you're in the field, you're going to make a lot of money no matter what. And I look at those things and I go, but I don't care about those. <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan. It doesn't matter to me that there's supposedly some sort of prestige tied into the Charles Schwab challenge on the PGA Tour. That's not true. Nobody feels that way. When I watch the Charles Schwab challenge, it's not a particularly deep field. It's a lot of names I don't understand as they're playing down the stretch. I kind of care because I gamble on it, but from a strict emotional aspect, I never care. And on the money side, it doesn't matter to me if people are making money that, that aren't me. And even me, it doesn't really honestly matter that much. Money's not one of those things that I feel that attached to in life. It serves a purpose that makes sense, but I'm never going to be the person that gets stars in their eyes when they see dollars and, and goes, oh, I gotta, I'll bend over and kill myself trying to get X amount more into my bank account. That's just not something that really motivates me. That's not really something that makes me feel. So I see those things and I go, well, uh, this isn't really resonating with me as a fan. And I think a lot of other golf fans would echo similar sentiments. Okay. Now what makes this part really frustrating to me as a fan is I go, well, hold on one second. We just watched a tournament. It was the U S open played at the country club in Boston. One of four tournaments per year that players and fans alike truly, truly care about. You see it. You see it in the way the crowd is tuned in. You see it in the way that players are reacting. You see it in the pressure, the nerves, the way that after every one of those four tournaments, and you know the four that I'm talking about, the way that players react, that win, the way that players react when they lose. It's not about the biggest purse on planet Earth. It's not about the PGA Tour sitting there and saying, well, this is just, this is a great tournament because we say it so. It's about these separate governing bodies. And I actually want to identify the top three, what I believe are the three best tournaments on planet earth. PGA championship. Okay, great. It's a major cool run by the PGA, which not my favorite governing body. There are three tournaments that just consistently blow me away as I become a golf fan. US open. That's one of them. The badass tournaments run by the USGA, not the PGA tour. The masters badass tournament. You know how great it is not run by the PGA tour. British open. Want to call the open. Not run by the PGA Tour. The three best tournaments golf. Consistently deliver that thing that I want as a fan. Ooh, everybody here cares. I care. Oh, this is great. This is, this is an emotional wave that I can ride. So as the U.S. Open's going on, and I mean, it was a really, really high level event. I watched a good amount of it. Watched a good amount of it on Sunday. 
and you felt the emotional stakes of the event, how everybody was invested within that as Scheffler's coming up and then Zalatoris making a charge and then Fitzpatrick's making a charge and down the stretch, it kind of turned into this three-way race between those three golfers. And at a course like the country club, the way that it was set up with those conditions, I mean, you couldn't really just balk your way into a win in a way that I complain about on the PGA tour a lot, just these dartboard courses, they're soft and they're okay. You know, we don't want to get too crazy. Nothing to go on here. I mean, it was a grind. It was the style of golf that I think brings out the best in the best in the world. You see a separation of who was playing the best this week. It was those three players. I think everybody, not because they were at the top of the leaderboard. I think everybody who watched that tournament throughout would say, well, yeah, Fitzpatrick and Zalatoris and Scheffler were sensational. One of them had to win. It was Fitzpatrick because down the stretch, he was the most sensational. Incredible putt on 13. Incredible approach on 15. Uh, Great putt there as well to cap off the birdie. And then the shot out of the bunker on 18 to kind of essentially seal things in retrospect after Zalatoris misses his birdie putt. You see him after the tournament. And I don't think I feel very confident saying this on behalf of Matthew Fitzpatrick. All of his reactions and just he's crying, he's hugging his family. He's just, you can tell he's kind of on cloud nine and kind of in shock. Not a money thing. It's not because the USGA said, well, this today's tournament is going to be good. It's because the US Open over the course of a long period of time has established this vision for what a golf tournament should be. Yes, we're going to get money involved. Yes, we're going to get uh, uh, stakes involved emotionally, but it's going to take time to do that. And they've been doing that for a long period of time, you know. And now in present day, we're bearing the fruits of that. So you can see Matthew Fitzpatrick. One of my favorite things of any of these three tournaments is when the winner actually wins and you just see all the emotion come in and you're just like, that's cool. That's really cool. It was cool seeing it with Fitzpatrick. And I think back to the recent Matsuyama win at the Masters a couple Masters ago and just like him on that walk after he's coming off the 18th his caddy's bound at the flag and take I mean it's just it's awesome stuff or even somebody like uh like Shane Lowry winning the Open which as he's coming down you can just tell like what this is this is the dream this is everything I've ever wanted as a golfer in life I've already made a bunch of money all of those people have already made money uh they've won tournaments Fitzpatrick on Heather Torres, but you get the point. But there's something that's very special about these particular events. Now, that ties into kind of this distinct culture that is created by each of those events because they have their own personality. They have their own flavor. They have visions that were established a long time ago that over the course of time have, have grown and thrived and allowed the people who are involved to care about them encourage them to care. And then that's spawned out because when you see something happening like that, you want to be involved. You want to go, yeah, this is great. You know, I want to be involved with the U.S. Open. I want to be involved with the Masters. I want to be involved with the British Open. They're awesome every year. And there's a common denominator there. It has nothing to do with the PGA Tour. It has nothing to do with Live. Those, those things are not involved with any of these three tournaments. They're run by governing bodies that are not the PGA Tour, first and foremost. And there's thought that's placed into course. There's thought that's placed into condition. There's thought that's placed into field in a way that I think the PGA Tour falls very, very, very short. Again, kind of what has opened the door for Liv to swoop in and try to promise something different, even if I think what they are promising is kind of fool's gold. Now, it's very strange as I think about the sport in totality, and I go, well, I don't, I don't understand because we have th- three separate events that have mastered putting on 
a golf tournament that have established distinct culture around these events. While the main governing body that has existed for a long period of time, the PGA Tour, and now this upstart one, Liv, they both kind of roll around like pigs and shit. They're just oinking around, going over for the slops. And fans are frustrated going, well, why can't you channel this, what these other three tournaments are doing more often? That's a cultural issue, you know? It's those, it's those questions that tie into the word. It's how do you establish a vision? It's how do you show trust for that vision, especially during adversity, which is always going to arrive. It's just how, how do you get others to buy in? All of those. Kind of a, not necessarily checklist, but you have to go through the answers to all of those. If you're really going to put something down that is solid, that has framework to last and indeed fulfill all of those the answers for those questions. So that kind of leads us into a sport that is barbaric, and I like that in a lot of ways, the NHL hockey. It's a sport that's just, it is barbaric. And in a sport that is barbaric, you're going to have a lot of barbarians, (laughs) shocking, I know, who are trying to establish these things. We're going to have visions of barbarianism in their minds and just go, let's get in and, you know, the problem is barbarians. They want to burn down the villages. They want to slash people with their swords. They want to eat huge turkey legs. They want to drink a nice glass of mead at night, actually 12 glasses of mead, which are all cool things in their own, right? I probably wouldn't be very good at them. I could do the last two things and enjoy them, but you get the point. Now, the Stanley Cup finals right now and the two participants, the lightning, the avalanche, they're interesting on a lot of levels. A, they're good at hockey. That already is going to, you know, be good. But for the purposes of this podcast, they're really, really, really interesting because in this sport that has had a lot of barbarian thinking in it, just no, this is the way it's been and this is how it will always be. We will go to the villages. We will burn everybody down. We will eat our turkey and drink our meat and go to bed and do it again tomorrow. The avalanche and the lightning kind of took different paths within the framework of that thinking and said, oh, yeah, I mean, I think there's opportunity for progression. I think there's opportunity within this sport to kind of maybe do some different things that is going to stress out these other teams that are leaning into this more uh, archaic style of hockey. You know, we want big burly people. We want to bash people. You got to win puck battles in the corner. That's the only thing that matters. Oh, you want to try and skate around. That's not hockey. You know, we don't, that's cool for the regular season, but in the playoffs, we're going to decapitate you. We're going to go barbarian on you. So the lightning, they're the early earlier pioneers compared to Colorado because they make the Stanley cup finals in 2015. It's the earliest iteration of this kind of seven plus year run of sustained excellence from this team. And that year they're the high scoring team in the league. Uh, they have a lot of players that you still know today, you know, a Stamkos, a Kucherov, a Hedman, a Plot, Vasilevsky, who's just uh, up and coming back at that time. Ben Bishop's their complete starter who has a great season in his own right. They make the cup finals, really entertaining cup final against Chicago, the dynasty of that time, or or the it team of that time is probably a better way of putting it. But the Lightning losing six games in that cup finals, and and we kind of see the vision in that point. Just, okay, a little more open hockey, a little more speed, a little more skill, a little more skating. You can still play some heavy hockey, but mm, there, there is something intriguing here because they made it to game six of the Stanley Cup finals. Now, we know that the Lightning have been a great, organization as far as establishing vision, establishing culture, trusting that during adversity over the ensuing years, the next half decade, 
leaning into something like analytics. These are two of the most forward-thinking organizations in hockey as it pertains to analytics. Something as simple as, hmm, let's look at puck possession numbers. Let's look at shot share numbers. Let's look at people who drive play in those individual aspects, and maybe let's try and accumulate them because a lot of teams don't necessarily look at that. They want the traditional archaic hockey man who's just going to bash you. And even if their Corsi percentage, their shots for versus shots against, it's 35%. Well, they're just going to go, that's okay. You know, in the playoffs, we can grind it up with this guy. The Lightning kind of looked beyond that. The Avalanche have looked beyond that. So they go, okay, we got a vision. We're, We're seeing it happen in 2015 with the Lightning. A little bit more speed, a little bit more skill, puck possession, shot share, that kind of stuff. But over the ensuing years, losing the Eastern Conference Finals in Game 7. Lose again in the Eastern Conference Finals in Game 7. They have an opportunity. After the 2019 playoff loss to Columbus, swept in Round 1. I've talked about it a bunch. It's kind of a seminal moment in this last decade of hockey. Because it represents a lesser team would have crumbled and said, it's time to burn this down. This vision that we had, it was cool while it lasted. Yeah, we made a Cup Finals, but we never won. And so it, you can't really win with it. Let's... Let's burn it down. Let's start anew. We can trade some of these stars. I mean, we got a bunch of stars on the team. We got Kutrov or Point or Stamkos or Hedman or Vasilevsky. I mean, go down our roster. We got a lot of people that other teams would want. And maybe we could break them up and get a couple players here or a great prospect here. Maybe that can transform our identity and our team. And maybe we don't need as many puck possession people or speed and skill people. Uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunities after that particular loss, the 2019 offseason, where the Lightning could have gone in a million different directions. And instead, You look at a team like this and you go, hmm, this is how you establish a vision. A, you have to have it in the first place, but they'd already had that for years. But then you got to start showing trust for that because adversity is going to happen. Sometimes a lot. You're going to lose in the cup finals. You're going to lose twice more in the Eastern Conference Finals game seven. You're going to lose in the first round after you're the best team in hockey by leaps and bounds in round one. Lesser teams, lesser brain trust would have crumbled. Barbarian brain trust, I promise you, this would have been a complete overhaul. And instead, they stuck with it and they said, okay, nope, we can make changes on the edges. You know the drill. Get a little more versatile. Understand a little bit more how to play hockey, trust in the vision, that kind of stuff. Okay, we win a cup. We win a cup. Now we're here playing Colorado for a third cup. Now, Colorado's gone through not the exact same path, but a very similar path because at its very best, you know, striving after a culture that will help you be the best version of yourself and also succeed at the highest level. It's a years long process and it always has to go through kind of that checklist that I talked about, you know, Colorado's it happened faster, but their point that they had to rise from was lower. It was the lowest you could rise from. It's that 2017 season. I've spoke to 48 points, Colorado worst non expansion team franchise in modern hockey. And that's the first year also that Jared Bednar had taken over as coach of Colorado. Sackick's a couple years into being GM. And it's a great point in time where I think a lot of other teams would have just panicked and said, holy shit, this team is atrocious. And we won 48 points. That's half of the points of a team that didn't even make the playoffs. That's almost impossible to do. And, and yeah, Patrick Waugh, he'd been coaching and he stepped down right before the season and Bednar got thrown in the fire in a way that was really unfair to him on a team that was young and just kind of rudderless in general. And then they accumulated 48 points during the season. And you're getting to the end of that. And it's a great opportunity to say, look, this guy who's never coached an NHL level, he obviously doesn't have it. I mean, we won 48 points. 
let's just maybe get a more established veteran coach, somebody who can bring defensive structure, who can, you know, get in here and hound everybody and make them dump it into the corner and try and dig it out. Take the more traditional hockey route. This team needs discipline. This team needs to understand how the roots of the sport uh, still are utilized in present day. And instead, Colorado says, no, all right, you know, calm down. Got to give this room to breathe, both on a roster level, both on a coaching level, both on a management level. And it's interesting to go back to that because I was just in the throes of like, this is so depressing and I want this team to be good. And it seems like light years away. Even a player like Gabe Landeskog, who was on that team, has spoken in present day of just, I couldn't possibly fathom at that time being in a Stanley Cup final. It was unfathomable because we were so far away from that. And you think about being in the midst of that offseason, the 2017 offseason, and you go, ah, that's, it's kind of incredible to just say, how do you, from nothing, how do you establish a vision? You know, how do you get people that are just losing consistently nonstop and are just dragging their feet everywhere? How do you get people like that to buy into something, come in and go, this is how we're going to play hockey. And it's going to translate into winning games, not just more than 48 points in a season, but we can win a Stanley cup with that. That's an incredible tall order. One that I think at the time I'm going, it's it, that's impossible. This is going to take, you know, this is going to take a decade to build out. And it happened faster, you know. The next year, the Avs have a great turnaround. They tap into some of that younger talent. Puck bounces go a little bit more their way. Bednar shows a little bit more as coach. McKinnon makes a turn as a, a legit, true superstar, number one center. They make the playoffs. They get bombed out by Nashville. But you go, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. Could be a flash in the pan, but you're seeing more. And you start to see that vision. Like, ah, oh, this team's pretty, especially that top line. Landis Cogranton and McKinnon. A lot of speed there, a lot of transition hockey. That's interesting. Not a lot of teams can have that in, in a line. That's, okay, something to think about. But then you see that slowly but surely over the ensuing years kind of build the foundational identity of the team. Oh, well, what if you had more lines that you can't all be as skilled as McKinnon, Landis, Cog, and Ratnan, but what if you just had more lines that can skate, that have some skill, that can also do other things if we pair the pieces correctly together? Oh, well, okay, now you're into a really interesting place. So you go into last year, and the Avs, you know, going into the playoffs last season, the Avs were the Stanley Cup favorite. Now, the Avs the were still untested, and the Avs, I knew going in, did not have the well-rounded, truly versatile roster that is the best thing to have in order to win. But they had one thing they were damn good at, transition hockey. And I go, you can ride that for a long ways. You could ride that to a cup final. It's just going to be harder. Now, makes it harder is you have an injury to Bowen Byram on the back end was huge at the time. I, I think that even more in retrospect is we watched Bowen Byram just explode this year as a rookie, but that hampered the avalanches defensive depth and especially puck transition, which they struggled with greatly in the Vegas series. The thing you need in order to have a transition game, they just the Vegas four check ate everybody on Colorado alive. That was not Kel McCarr and Devontae's. So it's a big opportunity after last year's loss to Vegas. Kind of a similar precipice to what Tampa went through in 2019. The Avs offseason, it goes, okay, you know, there's an opportunity here to make major changes. Vegas, they're bigger, they were more physical, they forecheck the hell out of you, and your transition game struggled. So is this the correct way to try and win hockey? Tampa's had to hunker down a little bit more. They still have a great transition game, but, you know, they've flushed out their team and they can win with defense. They can completely buckle down uh, a game and win 2-1 if they need to. Do you need to lean more into that side of hockey? 
And to Colorado's credit, rather than making any of these wholesale changes, rather than trading any of the stars that were currently on the avalanche, Sackick just said, no, we have a trust in our vision. We know what it is. The part uh, of traditional hockey that will always exist that we're going to have to flush out a little better is that versatile component. Yes, we have to. We have to accentuate our strengths, speed, transition offense. We just have to do that with more versatility. We got to fill out the edges. You know, the margins matter more than ever now because we're a championship contender. So let's see how we can maximize those things. It's trading for a player like Arturi Luck, and, you know, it's trading for a player like Josh Manson. It's just getting people on the roster. It's letting Valerian Chuskin, who's been the best player on the ice in games one and two of the Stanley Cup Finals. It's giving them a position to thrive. You know, players who I've talked about in past podcasts. That's kind of trusting. Actually, that's establishing first and foremost that vision. Then it's trusting it. Then it's writing it during adversity. It's getting everybody to buy in as you put them into that system. Say, Nachushkin, come in. Look at what we have. Look at what you can become. Oh, there you go. You're going to make a hell of a lot of money this offseason because you're balling out. Lekkonen, look at what you can do. Look at what you can come in. Josh Manson's the best example. A big, burly defenseman who wants to punch people in the head on Anaheim, who's just his sole job is to let them come into the corners and try to obliterate them like a barbarian. You're seeing him fly around the ice, get into the transition game. He's scoring a goal in game two on the rush. He's scoring an overtime winner against St. Louis. He's has three goals in the playoffs, which doesn't sound like a lot for Josh Manson. That's like 50 goals. That's part of the culture, right? Hey, get people to buy in and you can get people just really, you know, turning into the best versions of themselves. Now, as we transition to the third sport, basketball, the NBA finals are wrapped up. Honestly, I have not been that into basketball this year for a wide variety of reasons. That's why I have not been talking about it on the show. But from the cultural perspective, I think there's two teams that are really interesting to examine. And I've actually examined them both in the past, but we're doing it today with kind of a little different twist as I think about this particular component. Because I've gone through the process Sixers and just, it's pretty incredible that they went through this full decade of losing tanking. This is our identity. This is our thing. This is the best way to get stars. Now they're to this point in present day, almost a decade after the fact going, eh, are we really a championship contender? I don't think so. Are we really boxed into a corner of whether or not we're going to sign James Harden, this dude who always seems like he's 20 pounds overweight and his hamstrings can't hold up to a max extension where we're paying him $50 million a year. Is that a good thing? Especially with Joel Embiid who struggles to stay on the court because he's huge and plays physical and he just has a big body. Now, the interesting component of the Sixers, that's cool. That's interesting. That's not what I want to talk about. It's what they went through with Ben Simmons and the two-way street between individual and organization. Because every team always thinks they have the culture. Every kind of business thinks the same way. I interviewed a lot of people in my prior life as tech writer. And I never once met anybody, never interviewed anybody that was just like, our culture's kind of dog shit, you know? Or like, it's, it's all right, it's fine. But I'm not really that inspired to do anything every day. I just kind of go and punch in and make my paycheck and go home. Everybody was... We have the best culture and that's why people want to work for us and that's why they do and that and it's great and and it's you know in some cases it's true in other cases i'm talking to ceos and founders and upper management and i go well yeah this is what you have to say sometimes i talk to people who are not you and they say the exact opposite just yeah i mean culture isn't necessarily putting in a ping pong table and having cafe rio every friday you know it's a different kind of thing it's a vision that spreads out and emotionally connects with you you know, it's a two-way street. So Simmons, 
I mean, a dude who's kind of always been known as a person who might not be super invested in basketball. That was the knock on him at LSU, followed him to the NBA. We all know that story. Now the Sixers had the number one pick in the draft and they said, doesn't matter. We have, uh, we have a vision. We have a culture. We can easily bring this guy in. There's a lot of people who've had questionable motors coming into every sport and you know, you put him in the right situation and you can always see that change. That's true. That's definitely true. The problem is when you get a player like this who might not be super invested in basketball and you put him into the Sixers organization at the time that for the first handful of years of his career had a culture that was just, we want to lose. We don't actually want to win, you know? And as we look back on that, it's, it's strange to go. He was put in a situation that would just, it's almost like the worst case scenario. It's, it's being with somebody who accentuates your very worst traits and you feed off of one another and become worse for it, right? That's kind of, I think, what happened with the Sixers and Ben Simmons. A team that did not want to win got a player who maybe wasn't that into basketball and you just saw a player that wasn't that into basketball grow less into basketball to the point where now he's on the nets and I'm going, I don't, does this guy literally even want to get on the court? We can't tell, you know, but the process, the process in all caps and what results from that, you know, what, what results from telling your team that winning doesn't matter? What results from winning is detrimental to what we're trying to do right now, but that'll change for years and years and years and years. What does that ingrain into a person's mind? How do you get out of that? I think it's possible, but I also think that you're put in a pretty intense situation that some people are just not going to climb out of, you know, Ben Simmons drafted by a different team. Who knows? He might just be the same thing. That's absolutely true, but you'd never really know because the flip side of it is again, as I spoke about in a past podcast was Andrew Wiggins, who's the reclamation project of 2022 who that change in situation equals change in perception, who also on a cultural level has been a a great case in point of, well, you never really know until you see them in an organization that knows what the hell they are doing, that has a vision that has made sense and that they trust in. And that they say, if you are inserted into this, look at what you can be. We already have examples because he goes from one of the worst cultures in the NBA, the Timberwolves who've been atrocious since Kevin Garnett left. This is the first year they've done anything to probably the best in Golden State, at least over the last seven plus years, probably around that same time frame that the Lightning have been the team in hockey. The Warriors just understand what they are. And a lot like the Lightning, they're just like, well, yeah, basketball wants certain things to happen, but we want to just bomb people out from three and run around and have this freewheeling offense and have switchable defense. And yeah, Charles Barkley in 2015, he's on TNT every night saying, you can't win NBA championships winning or you can't win them shooting jump shots. That's literally never happened. No jump shooting team ever has. And then they're going, yeah, but we have Steph and Clay. They're maybe the two greatest shooters of all time. And we got a lot of things that make sense around them. And we have a coach who understands this and we actually probably can. And they won and then they added Kevin Durant and then they were just unstoppable. And then Kevin Durant left and they had some injuries and now they're back in the same spot of just trust in the vision, trust in the culture. You know what? We still have Steph. He's the sun around which everything orbits. What if we got an Andrew Wiggins brought him in here? You know, well, we now know he could be the second best player for an NBA champion throughout the entire playoffs. He can be integral in the Boston series, integral in a way that I, it blew my mind. You know, he's doing all the little things, all the things that you think a player like him who came out with the same questions as Simmons, questionable motor, who knows, you know, 
Gotta have the right thing to tap into his brain. And even then, maybe not. Instead, he's there, the guy who's criticized early in his career for just being the empty calorie, 22 point a game scorer, but you're not affecting anything and you're not doing any of the hard stuff that you need to win. He's doing all of the little things. Nasty putback points, just diving out on the floor. It's playing an incredible large role in swamping Jason Tatum, turning a terrible series in for him for now where there's all these questions about is Jason Tatum, what's going on with him, you know? Interesting contrast to look at because that culture trickles down and I think it's a two-way street. You need buy-in from all of your players, but once they do, what happens? You know, sometimes they're just still the sloggy version of their self. Sometimes you can have an Andrew Wiggins. And it's not to say that those two players are the exact same player. They're very different in a lot of ways, but they do come from a similar place as far as their on-court personality and that early career situation. And it seems like they've gone down well, not seems. It definitely, they've gone down divergent paths and whether that continues remains to be seen. But now we look at one highly and the other is still, uh, I personally have never had a lower opinion of as a basketball player in Simmons. And I think people who follow the NBA pretty much follow that. But all this stuff, I mean, it just, it goes back to kind of the question that's really, how do you answer it, you know? How do you make people care? You can identify it for yourself. It's really freaking hard and sometimes impossible to answer that question on behalf of others you know but that's the essence of culture that's why everybody's always talking about it that's why i talk about it probably once every couple months on this show it takes time it takes trust it takes competency it can be very tempting to abandon it when adversity first strikes or the second time or the third time or the millionth time that just never ends but weathering that storm is what turns you into the lightning or the avalanche or the warriors or creates these tournaments like the U.S. Open or the Masters or the British Open relative to their peers that are just complete shit. You know, it's these events or these teams that are capable of winning a championship and teams that are capable of plucking players off of other teams. Natrushkin or Wiggins or, or the Scrap Heap, you know, and getting them to buy into the vision of what they could be on this particular team and probably most importantly, with this particular culture. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. I have a website. It's chrisrawl.com. I have some things on there that I've written. You can go and read them. There's some cool essays. If you haven't checked them out, you probably should. Uh, I write a newsletter every week. If you haven't checked it out, you probably should as well. You can have that in your inbox every Wednesday. Just go there, hit the subscribe button, and put your email address in every Wednesday morning. That's one day from now. Assuming you listen to it on Tuesday, it'll be there. Uh, I'll probably, I don't know what I'm talking about actually, but it will be there and I promise you, you'll enjoy it. It'll be a grand old time. So thanks for listening today. We'll be back on Friday to discuss probably the Stanley Cup finals because hockey's on the mind and I can't stop thinking about it or talking about it. Till then, peace. Peace.